You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to our 12th and final segment in this course on the Catholic teaching with regard to the Holy Trinity. I am Father Kenneth Baker, the editor of the Homiletic and Pastor Review. And in this final talk, I want to cover two more points that have to do with the Church's teaching on the Holy Trinity. The first one has to do with the divine indwelling, which is related to sanctifying grace, the divine indwelling in the soul of the just, and related to that is the notion of the missions. The missions. Mission means being sent. It comes from a mission is a Latin word which means being sent. And so we have in Trinitarian theology what's called the missions. That is the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. And the Father is not sent by anyone. And the Holy Spirit does not send anyone. So I want to elaborate a little bit on that. These two ideas of the indwelling in the soul of the just through sanctifying grace and then the missions of the divine persons in order to achieve the sanctification of souls. Now that we have come to some basic understanding of the teaching of Scripture and the Church about the Holy Trinity, it might be worthwhile to ask ourselves, so what? What does the doctrine of the Trinity have to do with me and the practical problems I must face every day? This is, as you've seen from these courses, some is highly abstruse, it's highly theoretical, and pretty much removed from everyday practical life. But it has very much to do with you and me, since if you are in the state of sanctifying grace, you're a friend of God, a child of God, through baptism and faith and grace, the Holy Trinity dwells in you in a very personal and special way. That's what we want to elaborate on in this talk. God is an intense and eternal lover. It's because of his love that he created us. In John 3.16, we read that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that those who believe in him might not perish, but might have everlasting life. So God, the Father, is an intense lover. And it was because of his love that he created you and me, and it is because of his love that he wishes to be united with us to be present in you in a very special way. It's most important for us to realize that God's grace is more than merely some created thing that God imprints on us as a sign of ownership, almost like being branded somehow or with a logo. It is not just that or a tag of ownership that's signed by God. The full meaning of sanctifying grace is that God himself, that is, the Holy Trinity, not just the Holy Spirit, not just the Father, not just the Son, but the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is personally present in me in a way that he's not present in the rest of the material universe. The Bible says that God, through his grace, dwells in me and makes his home in me. For example, Jesus says in John 14, 23, which is one of my favorite quotes from the Bible. I'm sure all of you have your own favorite quotes from the Bible. 
This is one of my most favorite quotes, John 14, 23, where Jesus says to his disciples at the Last Supper, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we shall come to him and make our home with him. We will make our home with him. This is referred to in theology as the divine indwelling. Of wherever the Father and the Son are, so also the Holy Spirit is present. He's not mentioned in this particular text, but it's implied. So the three of them come. When the three divine persons come to this sanctified believer, they come to him according to the special characteristics of their origin and procession, which we've explained in the course of these lectures. These are truths about the Trinity that I've already explained. The New Testament uses the word sending or mission in this regard. The point is that because of the divine processions, the Father sends the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. Thus, St. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent his Son. And frequently Jesus says that he was sent by the Father. Both the Father and the Son are described as sending the Holy Spirit. That's because the Holy Spirit proceeds from them. But the Advocate, we read this in John 14, 26, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you, whom the Father will send in my name. So there's this notion of mission, the notion of sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent upon the church. One of the popes describes the Holy Spirit as the soul of the church. In the following chapter of John, Jesus says that he will send the Spirit. He himself will send the Spirit. That's in 1526. When the Advocate comes, the Advocate, another word for the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Advocate, the Paraclete. When the Advocate comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, he will be my witness. End of quote. Whom I shall send to you from the Father. This is what's meant by the missions, the sending. The Blessed Trinity is the source or cause of all creation, all three of them, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The final end or purpose of the universe is also the Trinity. As I said, St. Thomas Aquinas' view in the Summa Theologica is that everything proceeds from God, goes out into existence, and is directed to go back towards God. So the final end or purpose of the universe is also the Trinity. By reason of his creative power, God is present in all creation, sustaining all things in existence. There's this notion of God's continuing preservation of things. If God were to forget about anything for a moment, it would cease to exist. It's one thing for God to grant existence to something, but then he has to sustain it in existence. So that applies to each one of us. If God should forget of us for a moment, we would cease to exist. Irrational creatures, that is, things that are below man, plants and animals, glorify God necessarily by their very existence. The heavens and the earth and so as we have in the Psalms, they proclaim the glory of God by the very fact that they exist and that they function according to their nature. The glory of God from rational creatures requires free worship, praise and honor. So God has to be freely acknowledged by rational creatures for his goodness and his glory. 
Through the sin of our first parents, namely Adam and Eve, we lost the grace that God had intended for us to have. That situation was abundantly restored by the incarnation of the second person of the Blessed Trinity in Jesus Christ. So the Word of God, the second person that we spoke about who proceeds from the intellect of the Father, became man in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is both God and man. In Jesus there are two natures. There's the human nature and there's the divine nature. And Jesus Christ is like us in all things, as St. Paul says, except sin, and also except he's not a human person that Jesus Christ is a divine person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And that's the mystery. It's called the hypostatic union that the second person of the Blessed Trinity became man, became one of us. He's our brother. God's will is that through faith in Jesus, who brings to us the Word of God and the revelation of God and the grace of God that's necessary for salvation, the acceptance of baptism and incorporation into his church, that we should be made temples of the Holy Spirit, children of God, and heirs of heaven. St. Paul says, don't you realize that you're temples of the Holy Spirit? That's another way of saying the indwelling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And wherever the Holy Spirit is, there also is the Father and the Son. This is all accomplished through the indwelling of the Holy Trinity in the souls of the just. And that is accomplished through what we call grace, sanctifying grace, which is a created thing. God creates grace and makes us partakers of his divine nature. As St. Peter says in his second letter, we're sharers, partakers in the divine nature. And concomitant with that, along with that sanctifying grace, comes the presence of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now the indwelling means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit become personally present to us through grace in a unique way. Their presence in the soul affects both our knowledge and our love. So God inspires us by illuminating our mind and strengthening our will through his grace. When the Bible speaks about sending or about a mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's referring to the special way in which they proceed in the Trinity so that the missions are related once again to the processions of the Son from the Father and the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. The temporal missions, that means the missions of the divine persons in the created order where you have time. There's no time with God. God's eternal. The temporal missions, therefore, reflect the individual characteristics of the divine persons. So, this is important. The Father sends, but is not sent. The Son is sent and sends. The Holy Spirit is sent, but does not send. I'm going to say that again. The Father sends, but is not sent. The Son is sent and sends. The Holy Spirit is sent, but does not send. How do we know that? That is a brief summary of what Revelation tells us in the New Testament. This is theology. This is, again, faith-seeking understanding. This is giving expression to it in other ways. It's something like St. Paul. St. Paul is a great theologian reflecting on the reality that's recounted in the four Gospels 
St. Paul speaks about that in theological language, he expounds and explains it using other terminology. So that's here in Catholic theology about the missions between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that's the way the Bible refers to these three persons. In the course of salvation history, or in other words, salvation history means God's dealing with mankind in history, especially in the history of Israel and the founding of the church by Jesus and his commissioning the apostles to go out and preach the gospel throughout the world and to baptize everyone, we discover both external and internal divine missions. They could also be called visible and invisible missions. Thus, the Word of God became man in Jesus of Nazareth. That is what is meant by a visible mission. Jesus is visible. He's historical. He was born into a certain family at a certain time, in a certain place, in a certain country, under a certain political ruler, Caesar Augustus, and all of that, and Herod, and Pilate, and so forth. So we can locate him in time and space and in history. That's a visible mission. The Holy Spirit appeared under the form of a dove at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3.16, seen as descending in the form of a dove upon him before he leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then again, under the form of a brilliant cloud at the transfiguration on Mount Tabor, where you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit as a cloud, and you have the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then he says, listen to him. And he also appeared under the form of tongues of fire in the upper room on Pentecost. So we have these three kind of symbols of the Holy Spirit, all of which relate to will or love in one way or another. Now the visible missions are external signs of the invisible missions, namely the Trinity dwelling in the souls of the just. That's this notion of the divine indwelling of John 14, 23. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and my Father will love you, and we will come to you and take up our abode with you. We will take up our home with you. We will dwell within you. That is one of the consequences of faith and baptism and receiving the grace of God. So this means then that the Son and the Holy Spirit are present in a new manner in creatures. God is present everywhere by his immensity, the fact that he creates us and sustains us in existence. But when he comes to us by grace, he's present in us under another title, in a different way from the way of sustaining us in existence by his power. So it's a new and interior and invisible presence which sanctifies the soul and imparts to it a new supernatural life. So this is why in prayer we can pray to the three persons as already present within us because of the possession of sanctifying grace. We can pray to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And that's to be recommended to pray to individual persons in the Trinity rather than just praying to God as we saw before, which is more of a reference to the divine substance or the divine nature or the divine essence rather than these three distinct persons in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It personalizes our prayer more than just praying to the divine substance. So the Father then 
is also present in the sanctified soul because, as we have seen, where the Son and the Spirit are personally present, the Father who is one with them is also present. So when we pray to God within us, we should pray to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And that's basically the orientation of the prayers of the liturgy of the church in the Mass and the other sacraments and all of the prayers associated with that are directed, as we've seen, to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. So those are the two notions that I wanted to bring out in this final talk, is the idea of the missions, that the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Son sends the Holy Spirit, the Father is not sent. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the Father is sent by the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not said to send either the Father or the Son. That is related to the way they proceed from God and reflects a little bit of the inner nature of each of these persons as a subsistent divine relation. So this kind of brings us to the conclusion of our course on the Holy Trinity, which I've tried to explain to you on the basis of the teaching of the Bible, which is basic, that's where we have the revelation, and then you have the codification of that in the creeds of the church and in the various decrees of the councils of the church. There have been 21 councils of the church, and the early councils, Nicaea, 325, Constantinople, 1, 381, then Ephesus in 431, and Chalcedon in 452, 454. Those early councils of the church dealt with these internal matters of who these persons are, what their relationship is with each other. So we've brought out the fact that the Son and the Holy Spirit are consubstantial with the Father. First of all, the scriptures, the New Testament, proclaim to us that God is three in one. And it was Theophilus of Antioch in the second century that came up with this word called the Trinity, which means three in one. The word itself does not occur in the scriptures. So this is a theological concept that has been used ever since the second century to describe what we mean by the three in God. And people early asked, what are these three? So there was about two centuries of discussion and debate among theologians. During that time, we had various heresies that were condemned by the church in order to try and explain who these people are, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, what the relationship is between them. And we have seen in the course of this treatment of the Holy Trinity that the scriptures do proclaim that God is three in one, proclaims the Trinity. That's the teaching of the creeds of the church. That's the teaching of all the liturgy of the church, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are not three gods, but they're only one God. Then when you look at the inner life of God, we find that there are two processions in God. One that has to do with intellection, and the other has to do with will. Because every spiritual being has two internal activities, thinking and willing. You find that in angels, you find that in men. In that regard, there's no difference between angels and men. Angels get their knowledge in a different way by infused knowledge. We get our knowledge through the senses. But the internal activity of the person of an angel and of a human person is very similar. 
of thinking and willing. So we have these two processions in God of thinking and willing which give rise to the two other persons, that is, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, the scriptures use relative terms to speak about these three in the Bible. Jesus refers to God as his Father, my Father, and he refers to himself as the Son. So there you have the relationship of Father and Son, Son to Father. And then you have the Holy Spirit. How does he fit into it? Well, there's a second act procession by the love of God. And this is described by people like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas as the result of the love of the Son for the Father and the Father for the Son is so intense that the result of this is a third person. The term of that love is what we call the Holy Spirit. So that's the third person in God. So that we have these two processions and we have four relations, three of them being really distinct relations, which are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that you have then the one God and you have the two processions. We have three persons and then you have the four relations and then you have these various notions that are applied to them that, to explain the relative nature of them, the paternity of the Father, the filiation of the Son, and they made up this new word called passive spiration, which has to do with the Holy Spirit because it has to do with breathing, which has to do with will and loving. So the Holy Spirit is spoken of then in terms of passive spiration. From that then we move on to the notion of, as I explained, of circumincession. That is, the unity of these three persons is so intense that they mutually permeate each other. They all share in the same divine substance. So you think of that shamrock with the three protrusions or the triangle. It's one angle with three points. Same thing with the shamrock. So it's the same thing with God. It's one substance but three persons mutually permeating each other. That's the internal life of God. Then if we look at, in the last couple of talks, when God goes outside of himself and he freely decides to create the universe, this world, the sun, the moon, the stars, and whatever there is in the universe, that's all outside of God. God is not identified with that. Those things are creatures. They exist in time. God exists only in eternity. There's no time with God. God sees everything from the beginning of creation the beginning of time to the end of time, God sees it all in front of him as eternally present. So the point we made was that in activities outside of God, all three persons are active. That is, in creation, in redemption, and sanctification. Those are three major ones. Sometimes scripture attributes creation to the Father, sometimes to the Son, sometimes the Holy Spirit. The same thing with redemption and sanctification. The reason for that is God operates by his substance, by his essence, by his nature, and that's common to all three persons. However, in the scriptures, certain activities are attributed or appropriated to individual persons because they have some relationship to their origin, their procession. For that reason, then, the scriptures often refer to the power of God, God the Father Almighty, as the creator of heaven and earth. The second person, who's the redeemer, is the one that became man in Jesus Christ, so redemption is attributed to him. But 
in other places, the Holy Spirit and the Father are also active in redemption. And when you get to sanctification, it attributes sanctification and the communication of grace to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not the only one that does that. The Father and the Son do that also. So that's the notion of the activity outside of itself. Then we had the notion I just explained about the missions. The, the final point to make is that the Holy Trinity is an absolute mystery. It transcends the capability of any created intellect to totally understand it. But as St. Thomas Aquinas says and the Church says, it transcends human reason. It does not contradict human reason. It's not contradictory to human reason. The Church does not ask us to believe something that's contradictory. So we see this tremendous unity in the Trinity of three persons in one. And so that's what we mean by the teaching of the Church on the Holy Trinity. So thank you very much for being with us, and God bless you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.